Welcome back to Conversations with the Leaky Cauldron, episode 25, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 20 through 25. And back with me are my esteemed and magical colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you two. I'm happy to be doing this. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, welcome back. Good to, Thank you. Thank good to get started again. It's good to get started. It's funny because um, the listeners who listen presently probably notice that we took a little time off and it's, it's almost like we were all three Harry Potter re uh, returning to the covered or, or um, Dudley's second room in order to sort of uh, restore ourselves for a month or so until we, we reconnected with the magical world. And, um, and so here we are again, finally an owl has shown up or a car has broken through our door or Dumbledore is at the door, uh, maybe too soon to say that sort of thing. Sorry, because the specter of him has sort of haunted us throughout the course of this book, but it's good to be doing this back with y'all. Um, th these last couple of weeks have been so much about return for me, having returned to St. John's, all three of our, uh, graduate alma mater too, for a week, which was wonderful too, in the magical Santa Fe mountains. But so before uh, we started in the pre-show, Wes had given the sage uh, suggestion that we go sort of chronologically through this, and I think that's wonderful. And so perhaps we could start with Xenophilius Lovegood, who has such an interesting name and um, such an interesting uh, periodical, and um, well, is Luna's father. And so, well, I guess, Wes, since you, you brought up that method of going through this, what is it about our encounter with Xenophilius Lovegood that you found interesting that you thought that we might want to dig into first? Um, well, I, I thought one kind of cool thing, um, I'm always interested whenever there's writing within the book, right? But uh, so he has the sign or a series of signs in front of his, um, his house. <laughs> and they, they sort of sum up what, you, what you've got here. You've got the quibbler, editor X Lovegood, and then pick your own mistletoe, and then keep off the dirigible plums. Um, so this sort of sum up like what you're getting with Xenophilius, right? Or what you might expect you're getting. Um, on the one hand, yeah, he's like the editor of this, uh, this wonderful offbeat publication that has so far told the truth, although that changes here. Um, he's got that, that love theme, like very in your face with his name. Uh, and the mistletoe, I take that to be a kind of allusion to that as well. You know, he wants to spread love. Um, and then, you know, keep off the dirigible plums, you know, he's also kind of kooky, uh, but maybe not entirely wrong. And, and we see that with his story of the three brothers and, and the Deathly Hallows. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there with, you know, intelligence, communication, uh, sharing and, and opening up. Um, but then also like this dangerous quality of, of certain kinds of esoteric knowledge that he sort of believes in and has a, tr a tough time uh, kind of supporting. You know, I love that because um, just a couple things about him. His name itself, Xenophilius, means lover of the strange. Uh, Phileas, philia, love, like philosopher, lover of wisdom, and Zeno, like uh, xenophobic. Um, that which is strange. Actually, the idea Zinnia goes back to the, um, you know, goes back to Homer, the idea of the guest host relationship, that the, the holiest relationship honored by the Greeks. And so that's very interesting, especially given the sort of hospitality or lack of hospitality that he gives to Harry, um, having seen, seeming to be somewhat two-faced at this moment, but perhaps because he's under pressure because of his daughter. Um, but something you mentioned about the dirigible plums. I, I believe we get a description of their effect at some point that says that they open your mind to that which is a little more mysterious or open your mind to that which seems a little more fantastic. And just something interesting about that with him is I totally agree that his, his trying to retreat from, he does seem to try to retreat from reality towards fantasy in some way. In fact, even when Hermione comes in and says that his crumble-horned snorkax horn is not that, but rather a, an arumpin horn. He uh, sort of attacks her and says that she's known to be closed-minded. Um, but it's almost like, and maybe I'm stretching things, but I'm thinking to Macbeth, also the, 
King Henry VI in Shakespeare, also Richard II, also a little bit King Lear in Shakespeare, um, that something about Xenophilius is he almost seems to retreat into fantasy from reality and to replace reality with fantasy. And maybe that will connect some with the fact that we actually read a fairy story in his presence. So another instance of writing and art within this. But uh, we just, we've heard in the past that his wife died and that Luna's mother died. And we actually see from a picture of her there that she used to be a little more put together. And so, um, you know, just as part of one of the broader themes of what we've talked about is how do families deal with trauma? Of course, Tom, you know, Tom Riddle came from sort of a traumatic situation in which he lost his family, in which his mother had been traumatized over and over again by um, Marvolo, her, her father. Um, we see Harry and how he sort of strives to become a hero. Now we see sort of like the roots of why Luna might be kind of off and kind of weird, and that that seems to be sort of... Um, besides having a very good and generous nature, that um, that might be in some way a result of her father's love of the strange because of sort of a rejection himself of reality, almost as if he, just to mention the Hallows, has himself sort of attempted to use a resurrection stone to bring something into existence that doesn't belong there or to to to, to attempt to retreat to another form of existence that is not... Uh, real. I, I don't know. Yeah, so Sarah, what I, you I, um, I was just going to say that a lot of what you just said, Alex, was what I was thinking, and those are um, in my notes as well about, about his name and kind of the irony that he, like his hospitality, his xenia is is like tainted shall we say with like a alternative agenda but also um you know his his I, I too was thinking about his uh his strangeness um and his fondness for the strange um maybe being a, not a direct consequence but a, an understandable uh reaction to to trauma or to the world being too much as it is but I also think it's interesting that until Luna is is taken or what we learn later you know she was she was um taken to to silence him it is the this very strange man um who is in some ways um uh committed to seeming fantasy and he is the one who is who who speaks quote unquote truth, right? Like um earlier in the in the in the book when um the three of them eavesdrop on um Ted Tonks and Dirk Cresswell and um I think Dean Thomas and uh, uh I think it's who says, Oh man, if you're still reading the, the prophet you know, you're just getting nothing but falsehoods. If you want the truth, you should read the quibbler. You know, I think it's interesting that someone who is so strange and maybe gets so much wrong, um, especially, you know, especially when it comes to that, like the horn that he keeps, so it, it also ends up lighting on truth, right? Um, like there's something about, about that that I find intriguing, um, or maybe there's a, an underlying meaning in that um there's a, a quote on like page 411 to 412 where hermione is like pure logic you know these things aren't real this is a fairy tale and she says how can i possibly prove it doesn't exist do you expect me to get a hold of all the pebbles in the world and test them you could claim anything's real if the only if the only basis for believing in it is that nobody's proved it doesn't exist and he says yes you could i'm glad to see that you are opening your mind a little <laughs> so it's it's almost as though like it's almost as though like having a really open mind means he's open to like all of all of the things include uh -huh. like in, including the crazy and the true you know 
I don't, I don't know. Is, is that a message that we should all do some dirigible plums or something? Is this a drug, by the way? <laughs> it sounds like it might be, but I don't know. I, okay, so I totally agree. There are three things I see there. So one is I totally agree that he's open to things that other people are not open to. And um, some people in poetic circles, they, they make a distinction between Homer and Virgil saying that Homer is a naive poet where Virgil is a, a sentimental or secondary poet and saying that sort of Homer sort of just transcribes what goes through his head, whereas Virgil is more literary and conscious. And people use that as, um, strangely to me, uh, a criticism of Virgil rather than of Homer, which I think could be turned on its head. But part of the consequence of that is, um, though he is more open to figuring things out or maintaining positions that others might not when they are true, he is also, as you said, uh, far more likely to um, hold positions which are incorrect, but in a time when there is no, no um, legitimate or trustworthy source of information, perhaps his sort of intuitive way of doing things is best, even though he is clearly wrong about multiple things, especially that extremely present horn on his mantelpiece. Um, just something sort of interesting about that, though, is that one thing we talked about at St. John's doing the Aristotle Politics Seminar last week was that uh, a problem with a society is when it tries to reduce itself to being a household. So like if you force people to be generous, um, then they become more unified in that they are more uniform, but they become less unified and less complex and differentiated in that they are no they no longer have the virtue of liberality. They can no longer choose to freely give to each other. And so something that Aristotle says there is that um, uh, it is inappropriate to make something that is complex to reduce it to something simpler um, if you lose the virtues of the complexity there. And um, it just strikes me that with uh, Xenophilius, um, even though there is something gained through um, his desire to um, keep his mind open, that he, he also loses the virtues of discernment, which somebody like a Hermione offers mm. as well. So I, I do think that he is, he is opening our minds to newer things, but that um, sort of that, you know, somebody might call it sort of an Eastern way of looking at things that all are one and perhaps at some level that's true and useful to consider, but um, it is the differences between things which are real, which A, are real, and B, uh, you know, like, like a beautiful Persian rug, um, make the whole more beautiful, is sort of what I would say in response to that obliquely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Wes. No, I, I wanted to just quickly interject about the, the story he tells, um, how he mentioned something that made me think of St. John's, uh, since you brought it up. Um, he says, let's read the story out loud so we all have the same uh, yes. understanding, basically, right? Which I think is such a brilliant, you know, to go back to the kind of teaching idea, like what we can learn about teaching from these books. That's a, that's a really simple thing, but something that's really overlooked, I think, is just like how powerful it is to read out loud in one another's company and then like see if the understanding that comes through is the same. And we see it's very, very different, right? When you get to the end of the story, each of the three, uh, Harry and Hermione and Ron, have a totally different take on what the, the actual message of the story is. And it's very interesting that they start from the exact same place. But, um, but yes. Yeah, so Sarah. Oh, Sarah. I, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that the, um, the, the, what, how do we? What do we make of the fact then that his, um, it's his, it's his magazine, like his his work, his livelihood, where he is, um, you know, speaking the truth about, um, the minister, the like the current administration of the Ministry of Magic, right? It, is it is it merely that like sometimes it like is is the lesson, I mean, to reduce it to a lesson is is I know problematic, but. Is it that sometimes truths or like accuracies can only be arrived at when you when you consider the impossible? Like to pick up on the Sherlock Holmes um, idea that once you eliminate all of like however impossible um, something might seem or be, if you if if it's what you've 
deduced, then it has to be true. I mean, I guess I like the fact that he is, he is the one, um, you know, speaking truth to power, shall we say, and he's, he's doing so publicly. Um, he's publishing articles. Like, what do we make of that? That he is also crazy. I mean, like, does that mean that, that, like, what are we supposed to take away from that? I think is, is where I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, as a, as a figure in the media, um, I'm not, I'm not, like, usually credibility would be erased um, by the fact that he, um, he doesn't have discernment. He doesn't have um, a clear sense of lines between truth and non-truth or, like, reality and fantasy, as we've been saying. So the fact that he is also publishing what we as readers know to be the truth about Harry and Voldemort and um, what's going on in the wizarding world, what do we make of the fact that he is not credible and yet credible? As you're talking about that, I, I have a thought about the sort of larger problem of the political uh, sort of media landscape within the Harry Potter world, right? Like it's because the the reputable and sort of more judicious uh, normally uh, sources have been like captured, right? By by the um, the evil of Voldemort's uh, uh, sort of coup um, that they cannot give accurate information anymore. They they give you know false information, um, and so. In that context, uh, his work, Xenophilius's work, um, becomes the only place where you're going to find true things. And of course, you're also going to find, you know, a lot of crazy stuff along with the truth, right? But but that's that seems to me to be more an artifact of the the problem with the 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 reputable media outlets, and and not so much necessarily, you know, telling us that we have to um, be open to to seeing. Uh, the, the world the way Xenophilius sees the world. Um, and so I think that there's there's an interesting problem with Xenophilius too, where when he gets captured as well, right, then he stops telling the truth, right? It's it's the same problem um, that, that afflicts him as afflicts the other um, more evidence-based, maybe more logical or whatever uh, news sources. So so once, once he has to um, sort of fall into line, then he does so, right? Um, and he, you know, probably feels badly about it, but, but that, there it is. You know, that, that just makes me think, um, uh, you've just cleared up a major brain fog for me, Wes, because what's interesting is obviously it's ideal when the prophet gives the truth. They're discerning, they have the top-notch, they, you know, they have top-notch writers plus Rita Skeeter, and um, it, it's a very useful mechanism of helping the wizards to understand their you know, current geopolitical situation, they're just current situation. But when that source of truth is compromised, one has to look for other sources. And in fact, you know, we've seen another sort of irrational, odd source of truth too, which is in the prophecies and in Sybil Trelawney, who is herself sort of a, an unreliable source of information most of the time. And um, that, which makes me think about something you once said to me, Wes, which I, I think about almost daily right now, which is that you um you first played video games and you you know you had an idea of this world and then that idea would make you say go to other iterations of the video games whether it be Final Fantasy or Ze or the Legend of Zelda and that from those iterations of the games those stories about hero arcs you then moved on to stories and um, not just stories from your contemporary time but ancient stories and so here we have sort of a breakdown of consistent um, primary information about reality as it is with a, a spread of misinformation. And so where is it that these people go to find truth? And um, A, we do find that there's also an underground uh, radio station called Potter Watch, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> they go back into the past. And again, this is something that Hermione, oddly enough, even though Dumbledore gave her the, the tales of the book, the tales of Beetle the Bard, does not consider necessarily a relevant source of information, though she does know it's important. She keeps saying that they're just fairy tales. But where is it that these, uh, these kids go searching for truth? And you're making me understand that 
as Dumbledore has disappeared from this world, this sort of source of truth or this legitimizing force, this unifying or ordering force in their world, their reality, is that this whole search has been for truth and has been very, 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 um, it, it has not uh, borne many fruits yet, especially going to Godric's Hollow and now the Xenophilius. It, um, and so where is it that these kids now eventually have to go? Back to an old fairy tale that Hermione says, is, well, that's just a fairy tale. It can't be real. And so um, I suppose my question is, is that what happens? Is that what is being modeled for us in this fantasy reality that um, when uh, the consistent or the sure sources of information become corrupted, one has to, uh, I'm not even sure where I want to say one has to look, back into fantasy, into eternal fairy tales, which could, you know, is of course not only fairy tales, but also sort of, uh, I think, an obtuse relate, uh, reference to religion as well, or to religions that once were strong that are no longer strong, or perhaps also are sort of, have always been Gnostic too, I'm not sure if um, the Deathly Hallows has always been a minority sect of people. But, you know, something that we did realize in this, in this work itself is that, A, why are Hallows weird when Horcruxes are real? Um, or, and B, we actually find out that the Hallows exist. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. What, what do y'all think about that, sources of truth, and where to look when it seems like all is dark? I mean, I agree with that in in terms of looking to stories as the sort of place where truth is contained, even if it's not recognized. Um, I think that, you know, again, this is another way in which you can kind of get around the, the Xenophilius problem that I think, Sarah, you, you're, you're wrestling with. Like, he's kind of conveying a story, but he didn't invent this story, right? He just has a, a particular interpretation of it. And his interpretation, again, yeah, has some, some kernels of truth probably to it. Um, it doesn't mean you have to go whole hog with it uh, and, and wear the deathly hallows on your robes when you go to a wedding, right? Like you, you, you don't have to become a, a, a seeker of them um, the way that he seems to be um, while yet sort of acknowledging that there is some truth there. And, and again, I think that question of interpretation is brought to the fore in the way that that each of the kids takes the story a little differently. It's brought to the fore again, I think in the weirdest part of this reading we did for today, which is a bit later, when Harry is having that kind of dilemma, like horcruxes or hollows, right? And he makes what seems to be the right decision, but you know, he's he's strongly tempted to say, you know, throw it up and, and just go after the power, right? It's represented by these hollows. He he sort of has to understand something about himself. Um, and I think it's bound up with actually one other interesting aspect of the story that's told is about how the, the brothers, you know, it's because they can use magic and they can walk over this bridge they create out of thin air that they cheat death and that they get the, um, the hallows in the first place as a gift, right? Um, and so that use of magic thing comes back with uh, him digging the grave for Dobby, right? He chooses to do it the right way, as he says, do it properly and not use magic and, and just, and so there's something again about this kind of deeper sense of like power that, that isn't, isn't magical in the fantasy sense, but is magical in, in the real sense, right? Of, of, of having a deeper truth to it. Um, that's not really acknowledged in daily life usually, um, which I think, you know, can be summed up as love as Dumbledore likes to say, or maybe music or, or something you know, these other manifestations. And I think story is certainly one of them. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Um, I was, I was just going to say that um, I think because the story, the fairy tale is about cheating death and death figures pretty prominently as like the giver of these, these three objects. Um, I think um, putting that, story and conversation with death in the in this particular reading which is Dobby's by the way made me oh, cry <laughs> um, <laughs> made me cry in the movie made me cry reading it 
re listening to it, all of it. Anyway, but um, I think putting those alongside one another is really interesting. Um, and then also what you just said, Wes, like when Harry has that internal debate about whether or not to go after Horcruxes or Hallows, I think it's also important to, to consider that Hermione is like really um, resistant to the idea that these Hallows exist at all. Um, as a, as like a trio of things that are that specifically come from you know the figure of death and have these three specific powers and whatnot, um, and I think to all place it in conversation with like the absence of Dumbledore's. This is I I just see a lot of chess pieces on the board that I think are really important, and I I want to just see if I can draw a couple a couple of connections. So I, I might lose the thread in my in my mind. Um, it seems as though when Harry makes the decision to go, like, I think it's interesting that these three objects from the story and the Horcruxes, what do they, I mean, when I was reading that scene where he's, his, his, his mind is um, kind of uh, conflicted about which duties does he go after? I think um, I wondered like, well, what do they have in common? They're all like objects that stave off like, eternal death right or they, yes. they stave off uh or they're, they're like and um uh i think i think that's that's significant but um for harry what we've seen him i guess be faced with is or forced to, to reckon with is um a reminder at seemingly all of the books but maybe not all of them that like you can't that's some like all of the deaths that he's been dealing with are things that are out of his control. Like, I guess, I guess for me, I feel like the, the lesson of this, like the place where the power of story comes in is not like, does the story like give you a quest to go on, right? Like, Oh, I'm going to believe that these three objects from the figure of death are real. So I'm going to go look for them and I'm going to collect them and they're going to give me power. But, um, is there like is there something deeper that it can teach you about human existence and about death and its role in like natural life and um like like it almost reduces the story by a quest for every individual to go on i guess um it reduces i think it reduces the power of the story and that um, I'm not I'm not sure that that's something that Harry understands consciously, but I think that that's that's certainly what I what I get from it. Like go like an attempt to collect all three of them would would um and I don't I don't know. Um I think the scene with Dobby, he realizes he's not a mass like nobody masters or conquers death. Nobody does. Um and at the end when and at the end when he's burying Dobby and he feels just like this overwhelming sense of grief, he even recalls like the absent teacher, like um he recalls what Dumbledore would have called the thing that he's feeling. It seems to me that like in the absence of of the teacher, you kind of have to be in this world of like without a compass. I don't know, and I'm not I'm not sure I'm articulating myself well here, but or or just the anyway, golden. I'll leave that for you guys. Um, I I know I think that's fantastic, and you just sparked many uh, perhaps helpful thoughts in me, Sarah. Because yes, perhaps you have to go by your own compass, which is an image we see in a lot of modern fantasy, right? Not only the golden compass in the His Dark Materials series that is Wes's favorite, but also you know Jack Sparrow has a special compass in the Pirates of the Caribbean, but um, just two things about what you said. Um, it's so interesting seeing literature within literature, like an attempted ekphrasis or a description of art within epic. And um, I think you're right to draw our attention to that, both Sarah and Wes. And we see the image of three over and over again. And it's so interesting seeing three because not only is that holy in terms of like the Christian, especially Catholic sense of the Trinity, but you see it in many folk tales, the three little pigs, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Um, you uh, also Harry Potter and his two friends. There are three of 
them as well, as well as the three brothers. And then this, this uh, story itself seems to have some elements of the three billy goats gruff who are going over a bridge, but are not as magical as these three brothers. And it's as if this three sort of is a limiting, is a helpful limiting aspect, it, as if what these three brothers represent and these three objects are three attitudes towards death that are individually themselves perhaps inadequate to facing life. So one seems to be a very youthful one, the elder one. You can win any duel, but what's left out is that, well, you, ha you, <laughs> you only win when you duel. People can kill you without dueling. They can, uh, you know, there can be subterfuge, which reminds me quite a bit of Julius Caesar, which I just read, where he's described as having thir 30 and three wounds after he's died. And then, of course, there's the arrogant brother who wants to bring, to, bring, um, to bring those who are dead back. And I think we see both of these perspectives play out in Harry's mind during this reading. He also thinks, like Voldemort, of getting the Elder Wand. The, this seems to be the sort of naive, or excuse me, um, not superficial, but sort of youthful, uh, undeveloped perspective that Voldemort never got past. It's also shared by Ron that Harry also considers, or also flirts with. But then there's the second perspective, the arrogant one of thinking that you can defeat death, which at first I think seems like sort of the Christian idea of uh, defeating death last, but is ultimately sort of the opposite of that perspective because um, the way that one becomes equal with death is sort of in this Odysseus and the Phaedo by Plato sort of sense where uh, he just sort of blends in, right? He puts on a, an, an invisibility cloak. He, he becomes totally unremarkable and thus is totally remarkable in a way. And so uh, just to sort of <laughs> mimic what you said about not making sense, Sarah, I wonder to what ex extent um, which hallow the person would choose indicates their attitude towards death. Can you just never die because you never lose? Can you defeat death by bringing something back? Uh, also, of course, that reminds me quite a bit of the Orpheus legend. I think that's the most direct correlate. Um, and Orpheus does end up essentially getting ripped apart by maenads after having attempted to bring his, uh, his bride Eurydice back. And then um, the third perspective, the invisibility cloak, which is I find that so interesting because what is it that they already happen to have, these three children? They have the invisibility cloak, which is almost like that's the perspective, that humble perspective that everybody can possibly have that maybe they don't even know the value of. Um, and so I guess I'm asking whether, do you think you need to know all three of these perspectives to have the correct whole perspective towards death? Or do you think they offer like a developmental line, like everybody starts with wanting the Elder Wand and then thinking that a resurrection stone would be incredible, which seems to in some way be related to the Philosopher's Stone, but not exactly the same. One keeps you alive forever, one brings you back to life. Um, and th But then eventually you realize that uh, somehow just blending in uh, is the most powerful perspective. I, I, I'm hitting a limit here. I, I mean, I think that that combines pretty well with, I think, what I was getting from your take on it, Sarah, is like, you don't look at the, the three things literally as three things at all, but that there's like some kind of knowledge to be gained from a confrontation with death, which is something, you know, we've talked about in other conversations as, as a pretty central theme uh, in these stories. So, I mean, I think in terms of the, the three options, um, they're, they're like a starting point for unpacking the story. And it's sort of like an invitation to, to process the story and, and converse about it, right? Um, you don't have to take them literally, and you can still use them sort of symbolically. You don't have to take them even really symbolically, but sort of more abstractly as this, this idea that there is a gift in confronting death. And that, you know, is the way in which you sort of conquer death or, or something like that. I mean, this, the idea that like, there's a truth to stories, I think is, is pretty amply attested by the ways that, you know, like you said, this story invites us to look at stories within it um, and sort of like think about them. We see the characters mimicking that process for us. Um, I think you can also look, you know, to where the sources of this story are and, and how it kind of is, is built out of other tales, right? So like, Harry Potter 
is very promiscuous in its adaptation of other fantasy stories, of course. Um, but this particular one about the three brothers has a, a specific source in um, Chaucer in the Pardoner's Tale. Um, he tells a story about three brothers yeah. or three young foolish men or something who uh, are supposed to encounter death, you know, and, and, and overcome him. And of course, they, they are killed. Um, they kill one another, I think, if I remember right. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. so there's like a moral, you know, a moral valence to the story. Um, but that, of course, is within like the frame of a bigger story of Chaucer's pilgrims, you know. And so it's very interesting to, yeah, to like you mentioned, Alex, like go backwards through literature, sort of like uncovering, you know, where these sources are and, and maybe just see that more abstract sense in which a truth gets transmitted in different forms through the various stories that that try to kind of point towards it. Um, and, you know, in this, in this, uh, in the upshot of all this, seems to be like something about, again, Harry, like understanding himself, which of course is, you know, not going to be explicitly contained in the story that you're hearing, but, but is, is sort of in that relational component of the telling and the discussing of stories with others um, and thinking about them and, and, and tracing them and whatever else you might want to do with them, like maybe writing them, right? <laughs> I, you know, that's one of those great comments, Wes, where it's sort of like, bam, you know, um, and I was sort of hoping you would just pick it up, Sarah. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't find myself disagreeing. Oh, okay. with or, uh, no, I was just, you know, I was just sort of sitting there and sort of reflecting on it. I didn't have a direct comment to make immediately afterwards, which is always so interesting while being on the air. But of course, we're teachers, not radio personalities. So yeah, just add an, that's interesting. I'm gonna have to read the partner's tale because Chaucer is somebody I'm very weak on. Um, and especially since I teach medieval literature, I need to be a little stronger. But another three we get too is on the Potter Watch. We get Rapier, Romulus, and uh, Royal, though Rapier was going to be called Rodent, I thought was interestingly enough. Interesting enough, but uh, maybe this connects. Um, not only do we get an interesting use of story here, but we also get a, a, an interesting use of language. First, we get the three brothers' names, Antioch, Ignotus, which means unknown, like ignorant or ignoramus. And um, what is the third one? I have it right here, Cadmus. And Cadmus is a reference back to the creator of Thebes um, in Greek mythology. Antioch is a very famous, like sort of Eastern Christian city that was fought over during several crusades. Um, and it's also where Ignatius of Loyola, or I think Ignatius comes from there. I don't know if it's the same as Loyola, uh, my Jesuit professors would be very upset with me now, and maybe you can correct me, Sarah. But um, a couple things is we, we get nom de plumes here. We get pseudonyms. We get, uh, you know, Kingsley, who's called Royal. We get um, uh, Fred, who's called Rodent. I don't know if that's supposed to be because he's like Scabbers or something. And then, of course, Romulus, who is the twin of Remus, as well as we learn about the fact that we can no longer use Voldemort's name. We can only call him he who must not be named or you know who because of uh, because there's now a jinx on his name that alerts people to his presence. It's as if as we have to go back into stories and derive our own information from, from them, plain language is now being used to obscure truth rather than to, um, than to disseminate it. You can no longer, in sort of a 1984 Orwellian, some people might say nowadays in America sort of way, use certain words, which seems to be the beginning of not being able to hold certain positions. Like there's sort of a forced deification of Voldemort. You cannot call him by his name as if he is a definite thing like a person. It's as if he's being treated like medieval god who you could not call by the name, right? You could speak about him equivocally or by analogy or by negation, but not explicitly. And so I, I wonder if you two uh, sense sort of as language is being corrupted and uh, being used in a veiled way that um, now the value of story is going up, but, it, but that, and again, I'm hitting a limit here, but uh, that, that it requires something 
it requires a monumental effort. It requires something new. It requires the use of the golden compass, the mind, uh, without having, you know, a Dumbledore-like figure, uh, a Bernard-like figure guiding one. Uh, that's my question to you all, my muddled question to you all. Gosh, I don't know. Uh, do you have a, a sense? Well, I mean, I, I like the idea about the names and how they kind of represent this the same problematic situation that we saw with the, the media, right? Um, it is interesting to connect the, the secret radio station with the, the tale of three brothers as well. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, and I mean, the way that everybody right now is sort of in this precise situation of like confronting death, right? Um, it, it's kind of interesting how the radio medium gets to sort of broadcast to everybody, um, and yet it has to be hidden, right? So it's it's a very strange kind of uh, a belly flop of a of a of a of an announcement if you're you're secret about your announcement, right? <laughs> it's just kind of paradoxical. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the names are kind of kind of interesting there, the way that, you know, it's very clear who each person is, if you've ever uh, interacted with them before. Um, so there's sort of like a, a joking, a playful aspect to the, uh, the pseudonyms. Um, I, I think Kingsley's is particularly like obvious, right? You know, his royal, his Kingsley. Um, but, but anyway, the, the question there about sort of like having to just use your your own your own mind um i mean i think does kind of bring us back to xenophilius in a weird way uh because you know his his whole you know problem seems to be related to that again like if you just have your own mind um it can take you in some really strange places uh you, can, you know you, you start building you, you might start building a replica of of Rowena Ravenclaw's uh, really cool hat, um, you know, and that's like, of course, like a really important clue. It just, it's hard to notice it because it's, it's dressed up in dirigible plums, you know? So it's, it's, it's just to kind of, yeah, to, to kind of bring us back to that, that interesting problem. Um, I, I don't know, yeah, Sarah, if you had another kind of part of this reading that we should, we should touch on here if, if we're kind of circling around something that's, that's pretty difficult to articulate with that. I think, um, well, I think it's interesting, like the names that they choose for themselves, um, you know, like to choose a pseudonym, um, you, you want, you're like both, you're masking yourself to one group of people, but also revealing yourself or like a particular part of oneself to people who are like in the know, I guess. Um, so like stories particularly stories on stage there's like a, a revelation in a mask right there's like um uh there's there's both things are both obscured and revealed when when something is is done with kind of this veneer of secrecy or hiddenness um and that that's also i think um uh supported but not supported but like that's also just to add to that is like the only way you can get this radio show is if you know the password right so the, this radio show isn't it, it's hidden for it for for safety reasons but it's it's also there's like a a doorway in for people who are already in the club like i think in the old testament this is a shibboleth or like a password um yeah yeah i think that I think that's interesting. Um, or like that's certainly something that I thought about. Like, who is this? Who is this um, broadcast for? It's not for everyone. It's it's um, it's for people who are already on their team, right? Um, and I think as a result, like the effect that it has on them is not the same as the effect of the story, because the story, the the three brothers, that is for everyone, and you can access it from a lot of different points right like like you were saying they all listened to the same words and came away with different interpretations whereas there's one one avenue to this to this uh 
radio show, but the the listeners are all scattered and like alone probably. My my sense of the radio show is that it's it's there to buoy um the disconnected um and likely very scared people who are all on the same team. Um and I think the way they do that, you know, with a combination of news and humor is really interesting. Um, like the, the effect that laughter has uh, on on the three kids as they're listening to it, or on the, the three young people is particular. I mean, I think it's particularly potent, especially in like extremely dark times. But um, I think that the, the, the other, just to, go back to the name piece really quickly certainly the name ignotus is like uh in its root quite similar to ignatius um and there were two ignatiuses there's like ignatius of antioch um, who's like an early christian saint um and he was pretty adamant about like the power of the the eucharist being like a, a, a medicine against death um that was something that he was known for. And then Ignatius of Loyola, of course, is, is from Spain, but, um, and so not, not kind of the central, not from like the birthplace of, of, of the Judeo-Christian tradition, but famous for um, a spiritual tradition, or a tradition of spiritual practice that marries um, a, a kind of Dumbledore-like figure and your own compass. Like the the tradition of Ignatian spirituality is is anchored in teaching, right? Is anchored in you know, biblical story. But but the way that you read stories in the Ignatian tradition is you imagine yourself in them, and you imagine like you you practice um, you practice imagination, um, and so there's like I think it's interesting to bring up Ignatius, they, by the way, his birthday and Harry Potter's birthday are the same, but, um, and Wes's, uh, <laughs> and Wes's, that's right. Um, just like the, the combination of, of what we've been talking about, like without Dumbledore, where do you go? Well, you know, you can, you can turn to a lot of places. Um, Dumbledore's like physically absent and maybe who he was is up for debate in Harry's mind, but it seems as though the storm of that is settling and that like the like the truth that about who he was you know setting aside some of the setting aside some of the the questions that harry's been wrestling with after reading pieces of rita skeeter's biography i think i think the the storm that that creates for him is abating and he is he is just uh i think some of the things that Dumbledore stood for and meant to him are maybe being distilled. Um, and like his, maybe his compass is emerging a little bit more, more clearly. I think we see that when he buries Dobby, but I would just point out the only other piece of this reading that I think is super important, but the way I'll go into it is, is what happens at Malfoy Manor, because I think, um, and I think, the the community if we want to even call it this the community of the death eaters and i see i think we see a good example of this at malfoy manor um it doesn't have any of the traits uh that like that we were just discussing earlier right like um there's there is a unifying story or narrative in their community, right? Like that pure blood is good and not pure blood is bad. But there's no opportunity for people to engage in that narrative and come away with different conclusions, right? Um, there's awesome. no like no liberty of thought. There's and and it's and it's a space. It's a community built on fear and violence and like power, um, like they don't even seem to really all um, like want to connect with one another. Like they're, they seem to be more, more based on competition. So, so this radio show, as it, as it sort of establishes and perpetuates a community of really disparate people needing to know that there are others on their side 
from afar. Like that is a, that is a, even though they are separated, they are far more of a healthy community than these people who are hunkering down at Malfoy Manor. Um, and I, I think, I think that that's important. I, I totally um, that that's me. I, I, you've really helped me again, you're enlightening me quite a bit because what I think I'm seeing here is a, some correlates between, um, you know, these order of the Phoenix members and these like normal, good magical folks and say early Christianity and the persecutions that they would have, um, faced. But you're also helping me to understand that part of what makes a community of individuals is defining limits, defining limits by means of the words that are used as well as the actions that are taken. So something sort of interesting about vegans is that many of them don't understand that they're doing essentially a religious act uh, by defining themselves by what they eat against that which other people eat and not sitting at the same table. Uh, you know, very much like early Jews would not eat pork. Um, and, and it was the same when I first started doing CrossFit because there was a specific diet that people ate, um, the paleo diet, which differentiated them from others. But if I, if I look at the three commentators on Potter, on Potter Watch and I look at what they say, it's as if um, what they are each um, advocating are aspects of Dumbledore. They're embodying that which Dumbledore offered. They're articulating that which um, Dumbledore would have offered without him being there. So Kingsley, like a king, what does he ask us to do? He asks us to look out for the muggles. He shows his care. He says, you know, all you could do, and it actually reminds me a little bit of U.S., like, you know, if it's not too much of a bother, you can just cast a little helpful spell, No, not very hard to do, and you might save some lives. That'd be a good thing to do, very public consciousness. And um, then, you know, it's mentioned that perhaps he, he might be a good minister of magic. And then what does Remus do? He gives us expert analysis. He says, well, um, you know, if Harry were actually dead, this would be popularized. By the Death Eaters, and this would be a major win in order to destroy the spirit of the Order of the Phoenix as well, and their morale, as well as those who are holdouts. And so, most likely, he's still around, and so we get that analysis piece. And then Fred, possibly doing the most important thing, he humanizes Voldemort. Well, you know, after all this hard work, who wouldn't want a vacation? And then we're all laughing. They they not only define their group mm. by their certain activities and their shared desire to be helpful and fight against evil. But, but also they define who they are fighting against. They do not allow Voldemort to become a legend, to become sort of a mm -hmm. God, undefinable figure. Because if he's undefined, he cannot be defeated. How do you defeat something that's pure imagination, right? Uh, they humanize him. They give him limits. Uh, just as Harry and Hermione and Ron are giving him limits by A, actually searching out for his physical limitations, the Horcruxes, but also finding out what it is that he's seeking because if he is a god, he doesn't need to seek anything because he's already all powerful. But they are, they are discovering his limits by also limiting themselves to an endeavor as well. That's, that strikes me as extraordinarily important, Sarah, uh, what, what you've what you've brought up and just to the Death Eater point, they do seem to have a community, but it's a community that like Plato says about evil does seem to limit itself because something that strikes me in this reading always is that, oh my goodness, the Death Eaters would have won had they not been prejudiced against Fenrir Greyback. Had they treated him more like Lupin and given him a wand or allowed him to wield the dark mark, bang, Harry Potter is found, killed by Voldemort immediately, game over. But, since they look down upon him and let him wear the robes, superficially be a part of their group, but not giving him full rights, they fail. And so, well, and that I was going to say, like that, that in in Lord of the Rings, this is the case. I, it's certainly the case in like the Christian tradition that like the the uh, like in in the Christian in like the theological definitions of evil that like good good needs preservation it does not uh evil is self-defeating right like uh it's that which is built on is ultimately its downfall right like um and like you said with with great grayback that's a great example um but i i also really like the way that you re you frame that idea about like what each of these three um 
uh, what each of these three people on the radio show, how each of them do something that Dumbledore no longer can't or no longer can, excuse me, because he's not like walking on this earth. I think it also brings up that like no one person can do all the things. Right. right. And so, so like, um, you know, every single one of these death eaters wants to be the one person that is the, you know, the most important. They don't, they don't recognize the value that other people might have at the table. It's like, it's built on competition, right? Um, right. This is my house. I'll do the calling. Like, no, you don't have a wand, you know, like this is, um, who can prove themselves most necessary? Well, I think each of these three figures recognizes, and that's something that Dumbledore does really well, right? Is that when he was alive, which is recognize what another person is good at and allow them to go do that for the group instead of trying to, to like diminish that and become good at it himself, right? Um, I think, I think, I think that's, that's really important. Um, it also, I think, adds to the kind of, well, I'll, I'll say that. Um, but um, I think in, if, if there's three radio hosts as well, there's also you know, like the three hallows, right? And do each of those sort of represent something that Dumbledore, I, I, I'll just throw this out there. I think we'll learn by the end that each of those maybe represents something that he had to understand or he had to come to learn not just about death but also about life um, and like what makes a good life because even though those three hallows are ways of staving off death what they really are I think also is a is an illustration about what like what makes a good life is it power is it um like time with loved ones is it like putting your head down and doing a good job right um anyway I think, I think that's what you just said Alex is really great awesome I I would just throw out a couple other examples I think from the Malfoy Manor section that kind of prove the rule um Malfoy himself Draco that is is kind of an exception because he's not trying hard to like say oh it's Harry like let me kill him I'll yeah. redeem myself right no he's he's quite the opposite he's he's, he's protecting them in this scene it's very interesting and uh you know why Dottie, do you think the same way uh, why do you think why, he does that, that I, I was just gonna say yeah I mean I, I think it has to do with the kind of you know shame and guilt that he has must be wrestling with at this point um and he, he you know must sort of see that they're, uh, they're, they're no good is going to come of um, helping these people uh, who've like taken over his house and, you know, demeaned his, his, his family. And, and I don't know, it could even extend to go so far as that he's, you know, like kind of a la Snape, you know, has this very deep, buried, uh, you know, shard of goodness in him. Um, uh, Peter Pettigrew is the other quick example, right? Like the right. hand, you know, kills him because he has this one little tiny movement of pity. It's a very uh, Smeagol, you know, moment there. Uh, mm -hmm. So those, those two little episodes, I think, are, are, are worth throwing out there too. But I know we're kind of going long. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to start with that silver hand, that sort of hand of fascism, that Darth Vader force choke, um, tyrannical killing of the human element within Peter and just himself, who had been so dehumanized by his actions, be, in fact, becoming, uh, you know, a rodent for so long. I think we're starting to understand that a bit symbolically, right? Like he actually literally turns into a rat, just like Milton's Satan tur literally turns into a serpent from being a celestial being at the beginning, though disfigured with darkness. Um, and, and I do want to uh, pick those, those elements up next time because I I do think they're fascinating. I'm sorry, what, what was the first example again? Just because I was going to go on that train, but then I dovetailed. There was Peter Pettigrew and the, oh yes, oh, what I was going to say about Draco is that, um, in agreement with you, it's almost like what Draco has realized is that these are his friends. 
you know, even though he has been antagonistic to these three, they've been such a big part of his life. And it's almost as if sort of under the surface. And we started seeing this, I think, in the last book, too, where he was struggling so much with doing his dark deeds that he likes being antagonistic to a certain level. But he seems to also like the whole, even though he insults Hogwarts and all that, within within his world, he seems to like the world as it is. And this also strikes me as, to some extent, Lucius Malfoy's perspective. Like, Lucius Malfoy, before the Dark Lord came back, had quite the wonderful life, you know, uh, very high in the, the, the magical dominance hierarchy and one of the governors of Hogwarts. You know, he owes a lot to Hogwarts in the same way that Tom Riddle owed a lot to Hogwarts, in the same way that Harry Potter owed a lot. So I agree that there's some sort of kernel of goodness and it's almost as if, uh, yeah, Draco is, uh, he, he likes to be smug and arrogant, but to a point. Because, yeah, it is very striking that even though uh, these three children are, again, trying to obscure themselves and, again, taking on false names, and Harry even has a false face, that he's, even, even when his parents ask him who these people are, and even if that would mean that they would have tremendous glory over all people and that the ultimate goal of Voldemort would be realized, uh, Draco still, I wouldn't say stumbles or falters, but hesitates. Uh, And and that's, yeah, I I think those are excellent examples to end with too. And so, well, Sarah, you have been sort of taking us episodically or cinematically through this text. And I was sort of hoping that we would get through a very specific chapter, which I'll tell you which after you tell us uh, where you think we should go to for next time. So this time we've gone through 20 and 25. Cinematically speaking, which chapter should we tackle for next time? Um, I'm afraid of getting it wrong, shit. Um. <laughs> There's no wrong answer. I mean, my sense is um, we should get through chapter 30. um, But just because I think 31 is, 31 through 36 seems like a a good chunk for the, for the, um, it's, I don't know, that seems equal, even, but I, I, what, what did you want? Well, I don't care. No, no, that sounds perfect. I was just thinking 31 um, very superficially just because then, um, <laughs> then, then we have six more chapters essentially afterwards um, and I wanted to read more. But, uh, but no, I, I totally agree because that Battle of Hogwarts, that's going to be a big time chapter. Yeah, I think, I think 30 sets us up for, and then 31 through, through the end is basically all of the, the climax. Um, there's so much though that like I don't know that we might have to have like a part one part two type situation for our conversation because because I know that um chapter 33 we'll have a lot to talk about and chapter 34 and 35 and shit 36 like there there will and we might have to read it and then and then approach our our battle plan so to speak but um, I think there'll be like so much to discuss that we might need like a, like the movies, you know, um, right, right. before we go, can I just, can I just tell you my favorite image from this reading, um, was yeah. I, and also made me tear up while I was hiking, um, and listening to this is when we see that Luna has painted all of their faces yes. on her room. And then there's like a little chain that just says friends <laughs> tying them all together. That was so sweet. And like when we see her again, she is just the best. I'm sorry. Like she's so beautiful. good. Yeah. Well, you know, and it just the this time reading through was the first time I understood that she was being bullied and that part of her retreat to sort of a fantastic reality seems to be her dealing with the unkindness of others. And so, you know, with these Ravenclaws who are considered so cerebral, it's, yeah, I definitely teared up too, seeing uh, seeing this friends and just seeing how important these people are to her. And especially because, you know, she's always been sort of on the outside for them and Ron will still sort of make fun of her, calling her loony. 
And then just, yeah, I thought I, that's a very powerful moment. I thought, um, as well. And so, yeah, Wes. the only one, she's the only one good enough for Neville who is the other, <laughs> our birthday. So, yep. She's the only one who's up there with him. There it is. And well, so this is one of our rare morning episodes. Maybe I, I actually quite like this during the summer and summer is such a wonderful time. Um, and this is something we do out of pure leisure. And so it's the highest activity according to Aristotle, which is something we debated last week and something that's wonderful to be involved with. But I've got some coffee and water right here because it's a bit early in the day to be drinking for me, no judgment for anybody else. But, um, <laughs> but I'm having coffee with y'all. What, uh, what would y'all like to clink and then disperse with? Yeah, I'm going to go have some tea, I think, and get uh, going on some chores here. Good old uh, summertime cleaning and whatnot uh, around the house. So, yep, a little, little tea. Get the burrow up to, up to grade, up to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sarah? Um, I'm still on my first cup of coffee for the morning, so I'll probably make another one. and. I don't know what I'm up to. It's kind of rainy here. So I've been driving for caviar. And I think I'm going to go do that for the lunch hour. Um, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Is that a food delivery service? It, yes. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I've thought about doing ad infinitum and you know if I ever change my position in the education world or do something like that I'll definitely talk with y'all on the air about the reasons for it because we all we all do something slightly different with it while also doing something slightly similar with it through this and so yeah uh, it is so interesting what the life of an educator affords you which usually is not well <laughs> sometimes is not much materially speaking during the year but is certainly worth its weight in gold over these two months that we all get together um, to pursue leisure. Well, y'all, bottoms all right. up. Yeah, cheers to Cheers. That. Cheers. Good one. Two.